Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. As always, I'm a former film major and a current Droog, or uh, or should I say Jew? And I am joined this week, as always, by my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hey, Harry, how's it going? My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor, and still a Jew. We've got actually a very special guest this week. Our guest is a professor of film studies at Bangor University in Wales. He is the author of several books, including The New Jew in Film, Exploring Jewishness and Judaism in Contemporary Cinema, and Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, and Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the Making of His Final Film. So uh, it, it should be pretty clear to our listeners why we were so excited to have him join the podcast. So uh, Nathan Abrams, welcome to Jews on Film. Well, thank you for having me. I'm also a Jew. Then you are <laughs> for the record. more than qualified to discuss today's movie, which is A Clockwork Orange by director Stanley Kubrick. Nathan, yeah, like Harry said, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we want to start out just to sort of set the table a little bit and ask a few questions before we dive into the movie and its themes and things like that. The first question is, you know, growing up as you did, did you grow up in Wales? Uh, no, I'm from North London. As I like to say, I'm doubly exiled, once from Israel, twice from uh, North London. So growing up as you did in North London as a child, what did Jewish film mean to you growing up? You know, are there any titles that stuck out or in your family, what did Jewish film mean to you? Um, you've totally thrown me on that one you know, <laughs> in my family. Um, I don't think I was aware of it uh, as a child growing up. Um, the first film I remember seeing is Jason and the Argonauts. At least the first film I remember being taken to the cinema to see is Jason and the Argonauts, a film that stuck with me from my childhood, um, particularly because I really liked the book, was The Th Phantom Tollbooth, which only in later life that I realized was really Jewish in terms of the author and the illustrator. If I was to think now, Fiddler on the Roof, but that could be a, a memory that I've just inserted back in. You know, I wasn't really aware of Jewish film or being being Jewish film. I will give a, a couple of sort of childhood memories. The the films that I remember watching growing up were Spaghetti Westerns, the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns, um, and uh, James Bond. Um, it's a big ritual in the UK that every Christmas, um, there's a there was a James Bond movie on the on the TV, and even my dad, who um, wasn't one, I mean, the TV was upstairs in our house; it was banished. Um, from the living room and my dad would occasionally climb the stairs to watch a James Bond movie now um, when I was a kid I wasn't aware of it but as an adult I, I'm and it's something else I could talk about um, is just how Jewish James Bond is behind the scenes but I didn't know that as a kid wow now we got to have you back for another uh, you know Jews on Bond or yeah and you have to pick which one of the ones would be the ones you want us to talk about right yeah there's so many in there for sure yeah Right. So you mentioned that you didn't really grow up so much with that concept of sort of Jewish film. You know, you were introduced to film in a bunch of other ways, but you've obviously, you know, over the course of your career, been drawn towards exploring some of the Jewishness in cinema. So how did that start to happen for you? And then more specifically, as it you know relates to our podcast, obviously, you know, what drew you to Kubrick and kind of isolating some of the Jewishness in his films? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I studied, I read as um, modern history and then I specialized in American history and I wrote a PhD on American history. It was only during my PhD that I began to focus on, on Jewishness um, as part of my PhD. The, the film studies, I've never studied film, which is interesting because I've now been teaching it for years, but I've never <laughs> taken a formal course say. in film studies. Yeah. Um, so I, whenever we're designing curricula, I, I defer to my colleagues who have. <laughs> I was like, dude, you've studied this. I haven't. <laughs> And even then, in my early film studies, it was more general, it was more generic. The first academic paper on film I had published was on memory and identity and total recall 
and there was no Jewishness in that. Um, the, the original Total Recall, not, not, not that horrible remake. Um, and it would be an excellent exercise for you to ask me now. Talk about the Jewishness in Total Recall. I'd have to really think that through. Um, it was only as I progressed through teaching, it's almost a cynical move, right? If I want to write something original in film studies and take a Jewish angle, I mean, Jewishness is highly unfashionable in academic studies for a variety of, of, of reasons. You know, if I want to write about masculinity or femininity in film, there are many people who can do it better than I would. If I want to write neoliberalism, gender studies, um, um, sexuality, other people can do it better than me. However, I have found that if I'm going to look for an original angle, that the um, taking a Jewish approach will, will, will give me that. So that was the Jewish side to things. The reason why I chose Stanley Kubrick is kind of cynical. So when I was asked to design a course at, at, when I moved to Bangor in 2006, one of the things I wanted to do is I thought, well, we never really teach directors, not in the UK. We teach themes, um, maybe periods, but we or genres, but we tend not to teach directors. So I thought, well, I've always kind of liked Kubrick. Uh, one of my good friends from high school um, was an influence in that. I, I, we went to see Eyes Wide Shut together on Air of Rosh Hashanah, 1999. I remember that. And then celebrated Rosh Hashanah. So kind of like two firsts that year, Kubrick's last movie and the Jewish New Year. <laughs> We watched that in North London. Anyway, um, I, I always had an interest in Kubrick. Kubrick offered um, a perfect solution for a semester because we have 11-week semesters in the UK. And he by that point, there were only 12 excellent films. And the first few are short, so you could squeeze them in. You could watch them all. The beauty of Kubrick is um, 12 films at that point. We since found there was a 13th, um, Fear and Desire. And they cover almost every genre which is the other thing. So you could, and and they cover a period of time um, as well. So, you know, 1953 to, well, at that point it was 1955 to 1999. So I could fit in there multiple interests. I could teach a director. I could teach their development as a director. So you can get loads of biography in there. You can teach history. So you're covering four or five decades of US history primarily, which is also an interest of mine. And uh, you could cover all the genres. And the one genre he didn't do, what's the one genre he didn't do? There's a quiz for my hosts. Hmm. Let's see. My least favorite genre, but I don't expect you to know that. Quintessentially American genre, sorry. Musical? No, no, he did lots of musicals. In fact, wow. that's the film we're doing. So we can talk about that. Bring oh, that interesting. Okay. I love a musical. I love a good musical. I'll talk about that. Remind me. Westerns. We oh, I was just, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I know I grew up watching spaghetti westerns, but I always like the right. offbeat westerns, you know, like Star Wars or Easy Rider. And so um, that's why I picked Kubrick. Now, I started teaching him in 2007, and this is one about the most written about directors on Earth. Hitchcock's probably up there, maybe maybe um, um, superseded Kubrick in that sense or, or surpassed Kubrick. What do you say? What do you say that's new? And the one thing that I realized that I could contribute was um, I came up with three things um, that I'll call ethics, ethnicity, and archives. So we had access to his archive. It was open in 2007. It's in London. So that oh. was convenient. Two, uh, I wanted to look at his ethnicity. Only one person had written a book about Kubrick as a Jewish director. That's a guy called Jeffrey Cox, who did a book called The Wolf at the Door. And his argument is Kubrick always wanted to make a film about the Holocaust and never did. But mm -hmm. the film he ended up making about the Holocaust was The Shining. Controversial thesis. Mm. I'm not sure I entirely agree with it, but the research he did was impeccable. 
the third thing I wanted to look at was his, well, I'd call it his ethics, but, you know, I wanted to place Kubrick in his intellectual milieu. So prior to coming, you know, doing film studies, I wrote about New York intellectuals. I wanted to use that research and say, well, well, what would it look like if we put Kubrick in that milieu? I'm not saying he is one, but if we, if we compare him and um, that opened up a whole different world of what might he be reading? What debates might he be responding to? What might his ethics be? In terms of, and I was really influenced by a book called Ethics and Ethnicity about um, David Mamet, mm-hmm. who, who again I think is a fascinating um, Jewish screenwriter and director. Uh, he's more on the nose with his Jewishness; he puts it in there deliberately. You know, something like Homicide. So there's a cracking book about um, about we- weasels and wise men. It's called, and that really influenced my approach. But but you know, Mamet studied Midrash. Mamet, Mamet studied Torah. He became much more Jewish, right? And so mm-hmm. he's much more open about putting it in there. Now, we can't make the same claims about Kubrick. If there's Jewishness right. in Kubrick's films, we can talk about this. Is it there intentionally? Well, we can debate that. Um, yeah. My I approach just, is I don't care. Right. I mean, it's interesting you say that. In doing some research for this episode, I pulled up a New York Times article from, it's called Nice Boy in the Bronx. I think it's from 1971. Uh, how did Kubrick come to such a pessimistic vision of mankind from observation? He replies laconically, knowing what has happened in the world, seeing the people around him. He has, he says it has nothing to do with anything that's happened to him personally, nor with his Jewish background. So, I mean, it's essentially Christian theology anyway, that view of man. This is regarding Clockwork Orange, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that, you know, he kind of disowned any sort of Jewish connection a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, I would dispute what that article says, which is on, on a, even if it's his words, because um, firstly, if he had a p- pessimistic view of the world, right, Jewish history is going to give you one. Yeah. Right. No, no. You know, this is this is a guy born in 1928. You know, the final solution is implemented in 1942. He's 13 years old. That's his right. mitzvah year. He didn't have a mitzvah. Uh, um, so and he's growing up in a post-Holocaust world and some of his extended family were murdered and he knew that. So if he has a pessimistic, and I'm not convinced he has a pessimistic view of the world, I think he has a pessimistic view of power, mm-hmm. then that's definitely a, as a result of his Jewish upbringing. I actually think he's far more positive than he's been credit for. And we can discuss that sure. later. But if you look at his movies and the ending of his movies, I think that they're, they're, he's more optimistic and they're more hopeful. I think it's a cliche to call him a cold, pessimistic director and not a true one either. So let's get let's get into it. Let's discuss the Clockwork Orange. Before we do, Harry, uh, could you hit us with that IMDb summary of a Clockwork Orange? I definitely can. Thank you so much. So, always. So the summary reads: Protagonist Alex Delarge is an ultraviolent youth in futuristic Britain. As with all luck, his his eventually runs out, and he's arrested and convicted of murder. While in prison, Alex learns of an experimental program in which convicts are programmed to detest violence. If he goes through the program, his sentence will be reduced and he'll be back on the streets sooner than expected. But Alex's ordeals are far from over once he hits the streets of Britain. No mention of Jewish in the description. Understood. Nope. You know, totally. Wasn't expecting it this time. No, 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 no. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss A Clockwork Orange with Nathan Abrams. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here with Professor Nathan Abrams to discuss A Clockwork Orange. So let's start out and discuss kind of some of the major plot points and go through things. You know, we are introduced to Alex DeLarge, played excellently by Malcolm McDowell. And, uh, you know, he introduces us with his 
awesome voiceover that we hear throughout the, uh, he calls himself the humble narrator. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Karova milk bar trying to make up our razoo docs what to do with the evening. We, we see his, Alex and his droogs sitting in the Karova milk bar drinking their milk plus. And, uh, you know, we kind of get a sense of what these guys are up to, essentially going around, causing havoc, beating people up, stealing things. You know, at the beginning, they're beating up uh, a homeless person. Then they go and they interrupt a uh, attempted rape of a woman by another guy named Billy Boy, who's dressed in Nazi attire. I thought I would want to point that out. So early on, you know, if you're looking for it, the Judar was off for me a little bit. and then. We, you know, the third sort of crime that we see is Alex goes and he he goes to a house with his droogs and assault a a woman, an author and his wife kind of get into things fairly quickly. And it's it's fairly gruesome right off the bat. But any thoughts initially on how the film opens up? Yeah, you, you touched on this with Billy Boy that he's sort of dressed in Nazi gear. And that felt to me like a very intentional insertion very early on in the movie because, you know, Nathan, you mentioned that, you know, Kubrick was obviously born sort of at the beginning of or towards the start of, of the world of World War II. And obviously this stuff is part of his background. But I think that this is definitely a sort of, you know, anti-fascist kind of movie. And there, there's a clear, you know, governmental enemy that's existing in the, in the film. And to just sort of place that and to place in the imagery of Nazism, you know, even though it's not necessarily called out so explicitly later on, although I do think that once we start getting to some of the jailer scenes, there are, you know, very intentional allusions to it there. But I think this is setting this up as a sort of Nazi, you know, Nazi parallel. There's, there's Nazism that's kind of involved, invoked as, you know, sort of the face of a lot of the aggression we're going to see in the movie. So that sort of small detail, which, you know, was random. I mean, a lot of the images in this movie are very carefully curated and eclectic and very vibrant and colorful. And, you know, Kubrick, if anything, was a very meticulous director in terms of his, you know, image creation. So inserting that sort of Nazi uh, uniform into the movie so early on, to me, just felt like a very intentional choice. And I think backs up some of the cases we're going to be making for, you know, the, the, our Jewish lens of this film. Yeah. I mean, there's lots for me to respond to there. I mean, firstly, I think, I think Kubrick envisaged a sort of totalitarian future, you know, probably more Soviet style because of the invention of the, this dialogue NADSAT, which is a blend of Cockney rhyming slang with 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 Russian words. And a lot of the terminology through the film is more Soviet. And the interesting thing is, like you're right there, Harry, the, the, there is Nazi regalia, but it's not. It's it's worn by kind of the the uh, the youth, you know. Not mm -hmm. these. It's not sanctioned. It's not top down sanctioned. It's almost like they're rebellion. You know, they're right. dressing in a way that rebels against their elders. So look at how Alex and his Drews dress. Look how Billy Boy and his Drews dress. They're they're rebelling. The Minister of Interior is in a suit. You know, the authority figures are dressed mm -hmm. how we expect them to be dressed. So right. the interesting thing here is the fascist regalia isn't a top down thing. It's like a bottom up almost rebellious thing and and but another thing to be to be mentioned here is i mean this is the movie with the most references to fascism and nazism out of kubrick's movies there would have been more had he made aryan papers his holocaust movie but significantly there was far more in the book and in burgess's novel than in the film so right. even then he toned it down it is, yeah we should mention that the movie is inspired by a book it's a uh like you said, by Anthony Burgess. And uh, a lot of the language Ned set from the book is carried over into the film. 
yeah, it's just very interesting kind of hearing, you know, it only, it took me a little bit of like Googling and Wikipedia to kind of like figure out some of the lingo. But once I got, you know, a sort of glossary of what the words meant, it kind of made a bit more sense. I vetted it a bit more, you know, so to speak. There, there were two versions of the of the novel, one published in the US and one published in the UK. And if I remember rightly, the US version had a glossary. The UK oh, didn't. You make of that what you will. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're not the sharpest crayons in the box. What can I say? <laughs> the thing is, in the film, car, I think reading, it's a bit difficult. You know, reading, you know, I think you, you do maybe need that. But in the movie, with the visual context, it kind of begins to make sense, doesn't right. it? Because you've got that additional information you're being presented with, which in the in 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 a book you have to kind of make up with your head. And you also get Malcolm McDowell's charisma, just kind of delivering all that. Because you know, I have uh, I have family members, uncles who you know endlessly quote this movie, and a lot of that you know stems from him. But I also wanted to jump in on what you were saying about the sort of bottom up you know, fascism and that kind of, you know, fascism as rebellion or Nazism as rebellion in this movie, because, mm. you know, it's definitely a thread that I want to carry as we continue to go through the movie, because at least, you know, the way that I read it on this most recent watch, that those sort of tools of, of Nazism kind of empower, you know, Alex in a certain way as he, you know, stakes his sort of rise and as he kind of progresses through the end of the film. And I don't want to get too into that because it requires me to, you know, delve into some plot points that I know we'll get to as we go through this. But I, I just, I wanted to say, I really, I like that approach and that sort of angle of viewing how the story goes on, because I think that reads into some of the stuff that, or that works well into some of the stuff that I think I read into some of his later progression. And uh, right. I just wanted to set that up. As we continue through the plot, you know, sort of after the Drugs have gone on their initial crime spree, he gets a visit from his like social worker, um, you know, I don't know, I guess like not a parole officer, but his Mr. Deltoid comes over and uh, talks to Alex, make sure he's doing well and staying out of trouble. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an awkward scene, you know, sitting next to him on the bed, he's lying down and then he just grabs his junk and he's like, stay out of trouble. Okay, kiddo. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit intense, but, you know, Alex then, you know, proceeds to, uh, get dressed up in his very different attire, you know, as you mentioned, Nathan, uh, uh, that, you know, the Drugs outfit is very plain, white, bowler hat, like a jock strap, eccentric cufflinks. But, you know, he goes to the record store and he's dressed in this sort of like really nice purple trench coat with a cane and everything. So he picks up a couple of uh, a couple of ladies at the, the music store and they proceed to have this sort of uh, marathon uh, sex session backed by classical music, uh, which kind of adds to the overall in general, if we haven't said so already, this film has quite a bit of violence, quite a bit of sex in it. Uh, so keep that in mind if you're planning to watch it. As, as things progress, his droogs sort of feel like they've been cheated a little bit and they kind of want to assert a little bit more dominance in the group. They don't really like the dynamics of what's been going on. And they want to, you know, maybe sort of start to case a, a few more joints that are higher value you know they don't like robbing people on such a small scale so they try to make sure that they can do a little bit more but alex wants to assert his dominance and make sure that they understand that he's the leader so in a nice kubrick scene you know slow motion classical music and violence we get all we get all the things he pushes them into the into the river and he cuts his his friend dim's hand and he makes sure that they know that He's still in charge. I definitely want to jump into, you know, just 
slow down with some of the scenes that, you know, we're covering here because I do think that there's obviously a lot of important stuff. And it's funny because when you were talking about the sort of, you know, sex marathon scene that's backed by classical music and you said, you know, it's worth pointing out. And you you did, you you gave a warning for, you know, all the sex and violence and that was, you know, needed important. I appreciate that. But I thought you were going to point out the use of classical music or the the use of music in general in this movie. Oh, sure. We could definitely talk about that. And that, that's obviously, you know, there, there's a really big sort of like cultural thematic, you know, comparison where it's, you know, the association of violence with, you know, quote unquote, beautiful art. And, you know, we didn't even mention that in, you know, the big that that sort of first attacking scene that you were talking about that, you know, very violent, you know, attack, assault and rape scene that there's there's this iconic moment where Alex starts basically singing, you know, singing in the rain, sings the lead song from that right. or the, the quote, the title song from that that movie and and is, you know, sort of kicking and kind of beating these these two people, this man and woman, in tune with the music. And there's a clear sort of connection and association that, you know, Kubrick is making throughout between, you know, violence and like you said, between sex and, and this sort of classical music. And, you know, I'm not sure where the connection you know, where that goes in terms of sort of the Jewishness and the relationship between, you know, music and maybe, you know, classically, I'm thinking almost, you know, sort of religiously, you know, sweet music and, and the kind of music that is celebrated. And, you know, and I think I'm thinking in probably a little bit more of a, you know, sort of Catholic Christian oriented way of just sort of, you know, high art and celebrated beautiful art that I think the movie is interrogating its relationship with sort of high society and maybe, you know, you know, well-acted individuals, but we're obviously seeing it backing some really such beautiful music, backing some really just sort of horrific moments of, you know, violence and sex. And, you know, that at this point in the movie where we're kind of shifting to that, that starts to slow down a little bit. There, there's still a couple more sequences, but right. you know, the, the first half of the movie, there's just so much happening and so much in terms of the sort of violent sex and, you know, all backed by, you know, either classical music or classical movie, musical music. And it's just, uh, it's definitely worth pointing out, I think. Yeah, definitely. Can Thanks I, for that. Can I come in there on the music? Please. Yes, absolutely. Please. That's why you're yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, without going too much into the prehistory of uh, of Kubrick's, I mean, Kubrick's use of music is is really interesting, quite exceptional in some senses, and probably has set a benchmark much, much mimicked. Um, so the interesting thing to say about Stanley Kubrick is whether you like him or not, whether you like his movies or not, he's really influenced popular culture. You can't watch a Simpsons episode without getting a Kubrick reference. And, you know, we're not so discussing it today, but if you take a film like The Shining, the number of horror films, I mean, it's very difficult to think of a horror movie that doesn't in some way reference it in its wake. Similarly, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just just quickly, I mean, Kubrick was remarkable because when he made 2001 Space Odyssey in 68, what he did uh, when it was released in 68 is he he jettisons the standard composed score. Um, He had one by a Jewish composer, Alex North, um, and 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 re- and rejected it, and he replaced it with pre-existing classical modernist music, and that's groundbreaking to the point now that if you play the Blue Danube to someone, a kid, they'll go, "That's space music, right?" It's so yeah. they might not even know why it's so right. indelibly etched. Um, and Kubrick continued with that. So this is his next movie after that. But what was interesting here is he didn't just use classical music; he used electronic versions of classical music. Right, so right. Um, this is this is Wendy Carlos, Rachel Elkind. It, it should be noted that the in that scene they're not ladies they're girls and they're even younger in the novel so oh, right? um, you know there is there is i mean i suppose you need probably should do the safeguarding warning at the outset of this <laughs> of this episode about watching this movie is um yeah. it, there are depictions of sex violence and non-consensual sex as well you know this speeded up orgy is an electronic rendition 
mm-hmm. that he speeded up. And something you said, Harry, just just triggered something that I, I I want to mention is that there's a, Kubrick had a quote something along the lines of the Nazis loved classical music, but it didn't do them any good. So there mm-hmm. really is a reflection. I mean, that is the Jewish reflection on the relationship between uh, high culture and being cultured and civilized. So you know the Nazis would be no problem, most advanced civilization on earth at that point. But look what they did. So there is a comment being made there about Alex's love of music and Beethoven in particular, and then how that marries with his love of extreme violence at the same time, which of course the wider society finds completely offensive. But then at the same time, you know, there's a very clear historical parallel between acts of ultra violence on a mass scale and love of classical music. And Alex does like to refer to Beethoven as Ludwig van in the, yeah, as as part of uh, you know his his lingo in the film, um, one of the go ahead. Were you going to say something? Okay. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, if there's a Jewish background to the movie, um, what I would want to emphasize is in uh, earlier on we talked about what's the genre Kubrick didn't do. Kubrick mm-hmm. it was musicals. Kubrick did musicals every chance he could get. Right. Um, Kubrick loved to dance, loved the music, and he loved to dance. He, he was a great dancer, apparently. Um, really? Okay. <laughs> if you look at his movies, his mature movie movies, so pretty much from um, Paths of Glory onwards. Um, there is a dance sequence and usually a waltz hmm. in his movies. Now, okay. you see mm-hmm. in Pars of Glory, there's a dance sequence. Spartacus is kind of an outlier not in, because of its origins. We see it in Lolita. We see a dance of planes. Sorry, Dr. Strangelove. And we see the dance of the spaceships in, in, in with a waltz to the Blue Danube. So Kubrick put in a dance uh, and preferably a waltz wherever he could into his movies. For me, Clockwork Orange is a musical um, for a number of reasons. One, because of how much the movie is is edited to fit the music and the music is fi- edited to fit the action mm-hmm. and how much of the movie takes place in theatrical settings. So the, the Billy Boy rape scene is in a disused theatre. stage. Yeah. Right. Alex, you know, the way it's lit when they're beating up the, the tramp is almost lit like top lighting, you know, you know as if they're... Um, on a stage when, right. when Alex is abused after coming out of prison, he's on a stage. So right, there right. is a self-conscious use of theatrical spaces with the music set to it. So, and the violence is very balletic, you know, very mm. choreographed, very balletic. And um, so for me, Clockwork Orange fits in a period of movies. You think mid sixties onwards, you've got, um, so Kubrick went to see funny girl on stage in Broadway. He was still in New oh, York. Okay. Then. And he wrote a couple of letters saying, I love Barbara. She is the best. <laughs> and he thought about casting her in a later movie. I'd have to remember, rack my brain for where that, I mean, how serious he was, but he wrote her name. Um, I'll make, make of what you will that Kubrick was a Barbara fan. <laughs> it gives a different spin on Kubrick, right? Right. But, you know, Funny Girl 68, uh, um, Oliver, which wins the Oscar in 68 over 2001. Whoa. The Producers. Probably right. influenced by Doctor Strange Love. You got Fiddler on the Roof. You know, 68 to 71, 72 is this period of great Jewish musicals. So for me, this is another, you know, great Jewish musical. It just doesn't present itself either explicitly as a musical or as Jewish. Nice. I, I totally agree with you there. I mean, the way you were talking about how this is cut like a musical, and I was trying to mention this, but during the singing in the rain sequences, you know, and it's very gruesome. He's, he's kicking them in the stomach, but you hear the sort of yeah. grunting from the people he's beating like in key, you know, sort of right. in tune with the, with the music. Uh, and yeah. what's interesting is it's also, I think he's doing the same trick he did with 2001, like you mentioned, sort of repurposing older music and kind of putting it yeah. in a new context and giving mm-hmm. it some weight. And 
you know, he's obviously doing that with uh, with the singing and the rain music. And I, I actually heard some of the filmmakers there were very upset with the sort of negative associations he was creating, uh, interesting. you know, with their art. Right. But, um, well, the singing in the rain is was 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 an improvisation, right? Really? So it's not scripted. He he, the, you know, Malcolm McDowell claims credit, Kubrick claims credit, someone else claims credit. You know, of course. people always you know, that stuff fans like. But it was definitely improvised. And when you look at how Alex, it, he comes on with the cane, you know, the soft shoe shuffle. He's like a tap dance. Right. Right. It's very performative. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a very kind of self-conscious, almost meta nods to the musical. Yes, yeah, Stanley Donan, no another Jewish director whom Kubrick knew, um, was upset. Oh no, it was um, who's the guy in the movie that sings it? Gene Kelly. Yeah, he was upset, and I think he was more upset because I don't think he because of the money, <laughs> not because of the negative, <laughs> Sounds about because right. of the negative associations. But apparently, he wanted to punch Malcolm McDowell or something to that effect. But yeah, it's interesting. So, um, just just to throw this in here as a little bit of background information many people think Kubrick had planned everything out meticulously in advance. And to some extent he had, but he didn't let his plans dictate what looked good on screen. So uh, he allowed for a lot of improvisation and, and eventually would, would use what looked best on camera. Every did everything through the monitor. So, um, and that's, that's an example. You see it a lot with Peter Sellers in, 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 in Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. He allowed a lot of improvisation yeah. as long as people knew their lines. And that was an example of it there. So you wouldn't have found that pre-production. Mm-hmm. That happened right. in the moment. That's Kubrick so cool. liked it. Kubrick kept it. And then he and then he used it as a closing music as well. Right. That's true. Over, yeah. But the actual song, right? In the credits. Yeah. 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 Nice. Fantastic. All right. I will. Uh, I'll move us along in the plot a little bit. There's so much to discuss, and we could go for three, four hours for this episode, but I don't know how much patience everyone has. So just just to get us along further, but sure. I'm loving all this. Again, you mentioned that the Jews are planning another heist. They find this, you know, very rich woman that lives alone and they, they want to steal from her and they have this whole plan and they try to do their kind of their move that they had done on the other home where they fake like one of them is injured and needs a phone to call the police. But, you know, that doesn't work. So then they end up kind of building a ladder or just kind of like hoisting Alex into the upstairs window and he, you know, goes into this uh, apartment and he basically uh, proceeds to beat and uh, presumably rape this woman. And eventually the cops are called, but only this time before they can escape, the Droogs actually turn on Alex, bash him in the face with, I think, a, with a milk jug. And uh, he's ends up, he ends up getting caught. And we find out that not only was he caught this time, but also the woman ended up succumbing to her injuries and dying in the hospital. So he's given a prison sentence of 14 years. And yeah, and then we progress to a sort of next stage of the movie where he, you know, moves into prison. We kind of get, we, we watch sequences of him getting, you know, assigned a number and, you know, just speaking of some of the Holocaust illusions that we've been oh, talking yeah, about, sure. I think sort of that being reduced to a number was definitely evocative uh, when I was watching it, but we kind of see him moving into prison and then we get this two year time jump. And then we learn that Alex has sort of gotten into good standing with the jail. He starts helping out the prison chaplain. We see him playing, you know, some music for the prison chaplain and studying Bible. And of course, you know, his study isn't, he isn't a fully reformed boy, you know, sort of two years in, we see that, you know, he, he says, I read all about the scourging and the crowning with thorns. And I could vidy myself helping in and even taking charge of the tolchocking and the nailing in, being dressed in the height of Roman fashion. I didn't so much like the latter part of the book, which is more like all preachy talking than fighting and the old in-out. I like the parts where these old Yehudis tolchock each other and then drink their Hebrew vino and getting onto the bed with their wives' handmaidens. That kept me going. 
he's not sort of pulling, you know, the most pious and I'd say righteous, you know, insights from from his Bible studies. But he does also mention, I want to slow down on the scene for a moment because he does mention, you know, preferring the older book and clearly referring to, you know, sort of the Old Testament, you know, just kind of that alignment with, you know, Jewishness. And, you know, he talks about the Yehudis and, you know, that kind of part of the Bible. So I wanted to just slow down on this sort of Alex embracing his sort of biblical fascination and religion, you know, once he's in prison. Yeah, drinking that Hebrew vino, as he says, right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it is very interesting. There's a lot of things, just little things as we're going to like put a little breadcrumb for you. So that at the end of the podcast, you, you know, um, I thought something was really neat that Alex was um, injured by Dim. Alex had previously cut Dim's hand. So now Dim had injured Alex with the milk jug on his head, kind of like an eye for an eye sort of thing. That's maybe a Old Testament biblical kind of thing. One thing I was gesturing to Harry on the video was the armband. I, I thought it'd be, I thought it was interesting that Alex was wearing sort of, uh, you know, like a nice suit, but he also had like a red armband on his uh, arm that kind of was like a not so subtle nod to like Nazism, things like that. His scene where he gets into jail initially and is sort of uh, giving away his cigarettes, his ballpoint pen, his comb, his things like that. It's very like orderly. Everything was like, you know, he goes from this sort of chaotic environment to something that's very strict and defined and stand behind the line and, you know, say your name and address me as sir. And it's very much, you know, kind of like a, like an army. So I, it's a very interesting transition going from his past life to his prison life and seeing how he adjusts to it. And he just like loves it. He's like this teacher's pet to this priest. And he's such a good model prisoner, I think, initially. And that's maybe what gets him selected for this treatment, uh, this Ludovico treatment. But I wanted to stop and let Nathan uh, chime in definitely because this is an important sort of pivot in our film. Yeah, some things to pick on. I mean, uh, what I'm really interested in and what my shtick is, is um, I particularly like exploring movies so I do a couple of things, you know, to me, Phil on the Roof, the jazz singer. Yeah, they're Jewish movies, no disrespect to a podcast, anything else anyone's doing. But they're kind of obvious. They're on the nose. We know the Jewishness. So what I'm really interested in is, firstly, movies that can be read as Jewish that don't obviously present themselves as Jewish um, because they might have a Jewish director or elements to it. I take it even further. You know, it's kind of like a parlor game. Give me a movie and I'll make it Jewish. Right. Mm -hmm. Like The Room. You know, the, the room as in the worst movie ever made. I've written about that as being a Jewish movie. I'm not being 100% tongue-in-cheek, but I call this approach midrashic. And by that, I mean it, it's an interpretation. It's not meant to be taken literally. And it doesn't matter what the creator intended, just like midrash, right? It's ours. So to give a few examples from this movie mm -hmm. uh, over the plot sequence bits that you've just mentioned, I mean, the milk obviously is significant. We could talk about the milk land of milk and honey that sort of thing but it's the casting here so right. um the cat lady is played by miriam carlin miriam carlin was a, a well-known he used a lot of british television actors kubrick loved british actors for two reasons one they were there two they knew their lines right because most of them were classically trained mm -hmm. and um um so uh miriam carlin well-known tv actor she was known as the female peter sellers um, Jewish actor had starred in Kubrick's previous movies. He he puts her in this role, you know, this very, um, she's a very unsympathetic character, possibly not the most attractive looking in the way that he presents her. And it's a very big shift from the novel um, where she's far older and she's surrounded by this pornography. So, so we get this kind of age old association of, of Jewishness and perversion, Jewishness and pornography right, right. Um, in, implicitly in, in that sequence. And notice, I mean, you know that that phallus that he beats her to death with um, um, is is 
potentially circumcised. Um, oh yeah, that I didn't think about will. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's the first. That's the first interesting piece of casting there. The second interesting piece of casting. It's a tiny little bit. Is the um, is the cop the cop who spits on Alex? Oh, I remember yeah. Kubrick's Ponchon for multiple takes. Right, so Alex got spat on a lot of times. Ugh. Steve, that that was a Jewish actor called Stephen Burkoff. Um, so there's a really interesting point there about um, one of the things I like to write about is the oxymoron of the Jewish cop. I'm pretty sure that also Deltoid is played by um, a Jewish. Oh, is that actor. right? Aubrey Morris. You know, the character Deltoid as well. Um, another interesting character, particularly the role he plays, the way he interacts with Alex in the scene that you mentioned when he grabs his crotch and, and how we could read that. So so some of Kubrick's choices of actors are interesting. And one of the things that I'm keen to emphasize is whilst the ethnicity of the actor playing the character doesn't, you know, confirm the ethnicity of the character, it gives us a potential clue to reading Jewish, all right, or the possibility. So, you know, what I was always trying to say is that just because the actor's Jewish doesn't make the character Jewish. However, it is, does give us a potential, like, you know, ammunition to making the argument. Right. Whether Kubrick intended it or not. Sure. Um, so, so, so out of those sequences you've mentioned, you know, and again, the cat lady is very interesting because she's rich with jewels and and, and that. Sure. Right? So there's another stereotype in the way he says jewels, jewels. Oh yeah, yeah. Jewels, the way you guys say droogs over this, it. exactly. Sounds like Jews. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Uh, I would just want to jump on that thread you were talking about. You know, the casting of Jewish characters in these sort of cop roles and what that means, and you know it interrogating that concept of the sort of Jewish cop, because that actually, I think, fits a lot into some of the reads that I was having. You know, I mentioned this earlier about the, you know, the Nazification of Alex's character and that kind of progression. And, you know, and, and this obviously stems from reading this film as, a, you know, very directly, you know, interrogating, you know, concentration camps, World War II, Nazification. And I, I think we've made the case that a lot of it really is there. But mm -hmm. I think that his sort of progression in the jail and, it had me thinking of the concept of Sonner Commando, you know, and especially when I was watching it, but also when you were talking about the sort of Jews, you know, acting as cops and policing and, and the Sonner Commando referred to Jews in concentration camps, Jews during the Holocaust that were sort of given power as officers over their fellow Jews. And it was this very morally complicated situation where to save their own lives, they had to be responsible for persecuting other Jews. And it just felt like that was a thread that that is kind of existing in this prison statement. You know, we mentioned before Alex is wearing the red band when he's become sort of reformed, when he's become this sort of do good, you know, religious fellow. But he it, it's almost like he has become in order to escape his sort of being jailed. He's had to embrace that sort of mode of being the jailer, right. of being, you know, the kind of Nazi. And, and those illusions, I, I think, are there because I also made note there's a sort of later scene and we, we referenced, you know, getting into this, the, Ludovico, the Ludovico treatment, you know, this kind of treatment that he's volunteering for. But in that scene, when it's kind of being introduced, when they have a, a sort of roundup of prisoners and they're kind of talking about it, you know, uh, one of the, the officers makes a remark about... Cram criminals together and what do you get? Concentrated criminality. Crime in the midst of punishment. I agree, sir. What we need are larger prisons, more money. <laughs> Not a chance, my dear fellow. You know, that, that language, concentrated, was and even just the imagery of there was very evocative of concentration camps. And just reading the prison as this sort of Nazi concentration camp, 
you know, Alex's reform by, you know, being a do good and like just kind of, you know, warming up to the, to the guards and kind of taking on a role of being a, he becomes effectively this sort of agent for the state because he is volunteers himself for this large process that's supposed to reform his behavior. It just, it, it felt very much in line with that concept of the Sonder Commando. And, and like, I think you're saying, you know, he really is aligning himself or just contemplating what that means for the Jew. Alex, we're reading as this Jewish character to ultimately align himself with the policing force. Yeah. I think he's like a, modeling this idea of like a very enterprising Jew who like figures out, oh, if there's a if there's a loophole, if there's a shortcut, I'm going to figure it out. So he's volunteering, like you said, Harry, for this treatment that will cut down his his 14 year sentence down to something closer to two two ish years. And he signs up for it without knowing much about it. He's just heard murmurs of it. So he talks to the pastor about it, who says that it's not a good idea, but when there's a demonstration of all the prisoners together, the minister of interior comes and they look at all the prisoners. Alex speaks up. He's scolded by the chief guard, but he eventually just says something and they pick him to to do this treatment. And essentially what this treatment is, is Alex is put in a straitjacket, his hands are bound up and his eyes are pried open with these devices, which apparently he like scratched his cornea and was blinded for some time, which is added an extra layer of cringiness to it but you know he's exposed to these films and and music to to kind of essentially make him nauseous physically ill at the sight of violence and sex and things like that and it goes on for several treatments over the course of not such a long time i i feel like it was maybe they show it like three sessions or something like that but it's a very quick and effective treatment they're also putting drops in his eyes i wasn't unclear if there was any medicinal aspect to the drops or if it was just kind of something to keep his eyes watery but yeah it works out pretty well just a, a couple of things on the treatment i mean first of all right they, they inject him with some you know serum that kind of induces nausea so that he starts to associate it and we get this very sort of pavlovian kind of association with you know these feelings of nausea that are triggered by just increased violence that he sees on screen the one thing i wanted to point out before we moved on is that i actually read that these sort of eye drops that he's getting in there it's not medicinal it's actually practical because he can't blink his eyes are drying out and the the actor so to speak that's administering those to him it was actually apparently just a doctor that was on set to ensure that his eyes didn't dry out from the scene so there's there's something very uh interesting and practical going on there but just I, I wanted to pause on on the actual sequences he's watching because one thing we mentioned earlier you know uh we were talking about Nathan you had mentioned this association between you know Nazis and the way that they were viewed as this sort of peak society and in, in terms of their culture in terms of their arts in terms of their you know love of classical music and how could they simultaneously perform violence and what we see is in, in the first sequence we don't get to see sort of this classical infusion into the into the violence but in his second session is when we actually start it's the first time he sees a lot of Nazi propaganda footage or a lot of Nazi footage of them right. sort of you know marching exacting you know violence and that's where Alex starts to get really worked up because it, it's paired with uh, classical music. And right. that's, you know, to him, he's like, I, I don't want to create this negative association with the classical music. I, I love that. That makes me happy. But, you know, like you were saying, Nathan, like there, there's such a clear linkage between showing the Nazi footage and showing this, you know, otherwise, like we said, high art, beautiful music. And it's it's definitely playing into that, you know, that thesis, that idea you were talking about of, you know, how could you simultaneously like this most beautiful renowned art and also be capable of such terrible things. And they're really toying with that in the scene. Yeah. The, the I mean, the interesting thing in, in, in the world of the film, the Beethoven is just, um, you know, serendipitous. 
that they discover as the uh, that Beethoven's in what they're showing him that it right. that he loves it. Um, but the interesting thing, like I said earlier, is in the book, the footage that they're shown is is much more graphic, uh-huh. and and of 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 you know the the the, the genocide itself. We don't see any of that. We just see a lot of marching with Nazis, right? Yeah, and some bombing of cities. Right. And, and not say so that isn't bad, but we sure. don't see the kind of Holocaust footage that we probably, everyone here grew up watching, um, you know, the Schindler's List type thing. So that that's really interesting. I mean, there's a couple of points I want to come in there because what kind of really motivated to make, make Kubrick make this movie is 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 to do with this, um, this, this Ludovico technique, as he calls it, with this aversion therapy is bf skinner's um um, was the big name in psychology up to that point and and um he he dominated psychology with aversion therapy and kubrick was reacting to that and i read a great quote somewhere later on after writing my book that there were two types of psychology in the world at that point there was goyish you know wasp psychology and that was aversion therapy and then there was jewish psychology which was something different and um you can really see in this that implicitly Kubrick is adopting a Jewish psychological position of disagreeing with aversion therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the movie's about is he right. wants to take a position on, on Skinner and, and um, he, he's explicit about that in interviews. Um, he really disagrees with Skinner's position. And so um, there, there's just a wider bit of context. It's not necessarily Jewish, but um, the whole idea of brainwashing um, is very interesting because you think of the Manchurian candidate, the mm-hmm. novel and then the film which is 62 i think um and um you know there's there's a there's, there's fears of brainwashing both as a cold war technique i remember this is all during the cold war and there's something that cults are adopting to brainwash their members and that's that's kind of also a contemporary occurrence so one of the things i always try to do is in, in my reading of kubrick is situating him in the historical context of when he's writing so what is you know, it's easy to read films decontextualized, you know, well, I'll just read this film however I want. And to me, all right, that's fine. That's legitimate in film studies. But I think the stronger film studies is when we, and I tried to do it in my Jewish work, despite what I said about Midrash, is is to anchor in what's happening at the time. So B.F. Skinner's one and this whole debate over brainwashing, both the Cold War and cults are doing it. There's a big fear about cults. Right. You know, uh, uh, especially as late sixties, early seventies, and that they brainwash their members. So I think the films make an intervention in those debates as well, as well as larger debates about the role of the government in a totalitarian slash fascistic society. Um, and I think that's why these sequences, because to me, the most graphic. All right, this is a difficult one, but the most graphic um, non-sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's, uh, I'm not going to put it on the level of sexual violence done in the film. You know, isn't any of the beatings that we see? It's it's what's being done to Alex, right? You know, his eyes being clamped open. There's something so visceral about that. Yeah, you know, eyes, and and think of the motif of eyes. You refer to his cufflinks, mm-hmm. the yeah. whole advertising, the fact that one eye is right. made up. Yeah, yeah, right. The other isn't. The advertising emphasizes it. The, the whole. You know, there's something, and in, in Freud's essay on the uncanny, he talks about eyes and the Sandman. And so that 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 bit of the eye being clamped open is very, it's very hard to watch. Yes. I mean, I think we're all kind of used to watching screen violence, unfortunately, right? Beatings. Right. Yeah. 
but we don't often see people with their eyes clamped open. No. And I think even 50, what were we, 51 years later, it's hard to watch that sequence and not and not cringe. Um, so to me, Kubrick's argument in this movie is the the worst violence being done in this movie is what the state is doing to people like Alex. Right. Robbing um, him of this source of individuality and creativity. Right. Which then is is self-reflexive. Because Kubrick, here's an anecdote. During 2001, they had a, he was there with, um, you know, during one of the evenings with some of the cast and, and other directors, and they were talking about taking acid. And, and Kubrick said, well, I don't want to take drugs. And they were like, why not? He said, because it might interfere with the source of my creativity and I might not get it back. Mm. Right? What he would be certain is, is the aversion therapy would interfere with the source of creativity and he wouldn't get it back. So I think, in a sense, Kubrick's putting himself in the position of Alex and therefore making the argument that the worst violence that's being done is what the state's doing to Alex. Gotcha. I was going to just say uh, one thing about the uh, the eyes is that uh, I remember a while ago, very long time ago, in a in a college uh, class where we talked about comic books and things like that. It was a thing in horror comics in like the 1950s that people would always like stick like knives and things like very close to the eyes as like the worst possible sort of, you know, horrific thing to sell more books. And it seems to, you know, have been very effective in this scene. Um I wanted to just jump ahead uh, to what you could were talking Could I just throw in one thing there? Please. You just made me think. Great. Oh, I, I know. At least in the UK. What is it that parents always say us when we when we play with something dangerous? Careful, you can have an eye out. Oh, okay. They don't say, oh, you could chop a hand off or your arm off or a <laughs> right. leg off. Or At least the idiom in, in, in the UK is you can have your eye out. Like There's something in that. I haven't really explored that, but sure. I, I think... There's something so precious about the eye. I mean, think of Get Out, right? Uh, think about a director oh, heavily yeah. influenced by Kubrick. Sorry, yeah. spoiler. Um, For sure. You know, and really, you know, riffing on The Shining and, and Eyes Wide Shut. There's an explicit reference. And and what's the most important thing in there? Eyes. There in it the is. name, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a Jewish movie. There it is. <laughs> We're going to have you on for the sequel. No, no question. Definitely. You're our go-to Kubrick. There's clearly yeah. more in there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just uh, the one thing I, I want to touch on is that, you know, you, you were talking about the sort of stripping away the, you know, create his creative, his creativity, you know, and, and there's a lot of moralizing that starts happening in the movie about the ethics of what's going on here. And, and just one thing I wanted to touch on was that, you know, they, they mentioned when, um, he's, when Alex is complaining about, you know, taking away Ludwig, Ludwig van from him, right. He's like losing his love for the music. And one of them says, well, I, I guess this will be the punishment as aspect because one of the big debates, you know, for the, for them in the, in the film at this point is, you know, if we're reforming this person and just letting them go back to society, is he actually being held accountable for everything that he's doing? You know, if we're going right. to treat him like he doesn't have to serve the rest of his sentence and he's fully reformed. Yes. He's not going to lash out and act any more violence, but does he deserve punishment for everything that he's done before then? And, We'll we'll get through this, but a lot of right. the rest of the film is him kind of being faced with vengeance from a lot of the people he wronged. But um, just just to move the plot along a little bit, you know, after he finishes this treatment and he's effectively cured, we kind of fast forward two weeks and there's this demonstration. And like we were talking about earlier, it's it's performed on a stage. It's very carefully lit, and there's it's a real presentation. And you know, someone basically comes out onto the stage as as part of the demonstration and starts insulting him. And as Alex kind of moves to fight back and punch this guy and push back he's he's overcome with nausea he starts burping very you know, disgustingly and kind of falling over and then 
there's a, um, then they, they try to show his aversion to sex. So a naked woman actually comes out and stands over him. And it's this, you know, incredible sort of downwards looking up shot. I mean, it felt like to speak of other Kubrick, you know, it felt very like monolithic, you know, like the monolith from 2001, that kind of sort of, you know, looking up towards it, kind of gleaming over him. And again, he, he reaches up towards her. And as he's about to, you know, grab her breasts when he's overcome by this nausea again. And most of the room watching that, the interior minister and all of the people from the government kind of stand up and are, you know, very pleased and feel like, this will solve their issue. But, you know, the prison chaplain actually voices what I think will become one of the most important sentiments for the rest of the film and in terms of its moralization of what's going on. But he says that the boy has no real choice, has he? He ceases to be a wrongdoer. He ceases also to be a creature capable of moral choice. Padre, these are subtleties. We're not concerned with motives, with a higher ethics. We are concerned only with cutting down crime. You know, this to me is is such an important Jewish thread because, you know, I think that is such a such a Jewish idea, that kind of ability to choose. You know, we there, there's this Jewish concept, you know, that we kind of merit, you know, godly divine reward because we have the ability to choose not to act a certain way. And, and we did. And it sort of contrasted, you know, midrashically with. Uh, with angels, where angels, you know, are God's servants, they always do good, but right. they, they don't merit any reward. They don't get, you know, to receive the Torah the, the way we do, you know, or, and they, they don't get to uh, have the same rewards and options as us because they can't choose. And, you know, like like you were saying, Nathan, it's very clear that Kubrick is coming down against this sort of treatment that disables him from physically, you know, even being able to do any, you know, not even commit violence, but just even defend himself, act a certain way, you know, without that option what's kind of left from him. And uh, after that treatment scene, Alex comes home and he has this uh, difficult scene where he he comes home and he finds this man named Joe that's living in his house and he tries to move back into his room. But uh, his dad kind of says, well, Joe already, you know, we already made a commitment to him and he's right. already paid some rent and we, it, it would be difficult to get rid of him. And Joe kind of stands up and says, you know, I'm the son that, you know, I'm, I'm the son that you never were to them and I'm actually taking care of them. And, you know, as sympathetic as we are to Alex, I think there's some truth to, you know, Joe being a sort of model son as opposed to the, you know, the previously, you know, the, the previous rapist, assaulter, kind of terrible person that we saw Alex was. But again, he's kind of stripped of his choice to make amends because he's he's kicked out and sent to the street while his mom kind of cries along, but doesn't really um, get up. And then he uh, that that leads him to a moment where he goes to the side of the river. It seems as though he's contemplating suicide, but he's met by the same fellow in the beginning of the movie that he had uh, that him and the Drugs had you know, beat up and kind of faced the, with the same situation. And we get a ton of mirroring throughout. And I won't go through it all right now, but there's a lot of mirroring in, the, in this later part of the film. And he's sort of faced with the situation of, you know, being beside this beggar, but instead of um, beating him this time, because obviously he's, you know, reformed and physically unable to, the beggar ultimately recognizes who he is, brings him to that underpass we had seen in the beginning of the film. And now there's a whole group of people there that take their turns beating up Alex. I'll, I'll pause here just for a second to point out that, you know, what I was talking about, the repetition, and hopefully we'll bring this up, you know, as we go through a lot of that. But the, the, the sort of repetition at play reminds me of this, uh, you know, this idea from the Rambam, um, the, this famous Jewish scholar who basically talks about, you know, the concept of, you know, tshuva, returning reform. It, it's a concept mm -hmm. we've spoken about a lot in previous episodes. You know, one of the biggest tests of it is when you're encountered 
engaged in the same situation, how will you act differently? And if you can mm. be put in the same situation and make a different choice, that's different. That kind of represents full reformation, except what's so ironic about it in this movie is that Alex is literally incapable of doing that. You know, we, there, this doesn't signify any growth that he didn't beat up the beggar and that you'll, we'll see in later scenes that he doesn't fight back or that he doesn't, you know, re antagonize some of the people from his past because he physically is unable to, he doesn't have the choice. So it, right. it's almost like restricting in, in the Jewish sense of, you know, what it means to do this sort of tshuva, to return, to be reformed. You know, the, the rest of the government is calling this a reformation, but he's obviously, I, I think in a, from a Jewish classical sensibility, you wouldn't be able to call it that. But uh, just, just to finish, you know, sort of this thread. So after he's beat up, the police then come to arrive and he, he thinks that he's saved by the police. But ultimately, it turns out that the police are his fellow droogs from the beginning, Dim and Georgie. And I think ev evoking some of those similar themes of the sort of Sonder commander and joining into the force, they've been actually, you know, they've gone from being these violent criminals to being recruited by the force to kind of exact that violence on other criminals, so to speak. And they basically beat up Alex and stuff his head into a cattle trough and leave him as sort of destitute as we've seen him, you know, since he's kind of left prison in the film. And I'll, I'll pause there because then that sets up, you know, one of the big final sequences of the movie. Yeah, I think you covered a lot there. I do want to give you a little bit of credit, a lot of credit for bringing up Rambam. I want to give Alex a little bit of credit for giving giving Sadaka to the to the homeless person. I believe he does give him, True. right? So, you know, he did have a choice not to and he chose to. So, you know, that's uh that's nice. That's true. Yeah, I'm just trying to find <laughs> my mitzvahs where we can, you know. And I think Maybe overall, um, there's a lot to say. I'll just cho choose a few things here and there again, leaving those breadcrumbs. I think um, you know. Joe is like this sort of very tall, very buff, sort of similar to like Heartbreak Kid, you know, shout out to our past episode, uh, this very tall, blonde, kind of non-Jewish looking fella who's kind of taken the place of Alex, our scrawny Jew looking character. And then the way that, you know, the dad reacts versus how the mom reacts. The mom is just in tears and is beside herself, whereas the dad is just very flat and sort of doesn't have much of a backbone when it comes to this conversation. Um <laughs> Yeah. Nathan, any thoughts on sort of the 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 past couple of uh, plot points we talked about? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to come in there and just say um, Kubrick's position in this movie is probably the closest to normative rabbinic Judaism. I, I mean, you, you just said that, Harry. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, for me, um, Kubrick's most religious movie is 2001. Um, right as an experience, but in terms of its kind of imagery, this is his most philosophical movie, but it's kind of its most religious in, in conception because Burgess was a Catholic and that's how he envisaged it. But in the position Kubrick takes, it's the closest he comes to normative rabbinic Judaism. But the interesting thing is he puts the position, the words, the moral core of the movie is the Padre, right? Mm -hmm. This rather kind of comical figure. Um, and, and Kubrick kind of puts the words he wants he agrees with in his mouth, but at the same time then undermines it um, by having him as this comical figure right. who, for example, um, when preaching against aversion therapy, preaches his own form of aversion <laughs> therapy, right, which right. is there is a place, you know, try this Kool-Aid, you know, try a different Kool-Aid instead. Kind yeah. Of. So that, that's one thing. And, and I think, you know, this this goes back into if you take Kubrick as a whole and you look at Kubrick's representation of religious figures. So I'm just going to give a bit of back history here. Sure. Kubrick shows a fascination in religious figures, primarily Catholic, not exclusively. They go back to his photo stories when he worked for Look Magazine. 
They're in um, his first two documentaries, Day of the Fight and um, Flying Padre. In his third one, this is a largely Catholic milieu that he's filming in the Seafarers, Irish Catholic milieu. Um, and then we see um, religious figures of very uh, in 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 Paz of Glory, for example, the 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 the, the priest in that, um, you know, kind of in Spartacus as well. Um, if uh, Dalton Trumbo had his way, there would have been rabbis in that movie, anachronistically. <laughs> but that's another discussion, right? Um, and then we, you know, this carries through to this movie, but also um, the one following it, Barry Lyndon, where the where the <laughs> where the priest is called Reverend Runt. Um, so I, you know, I don't think you can get a clearer kind of, so, so it's a very interesting kind of representation of, 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 of Christianity in Kubrick's movies of which, of which this, this Padre is an example. And, you know, there's the bit where he's preaching mm-hmm. in, in the prison and you talked about Alex's armband and, and yeah. the way that he's posed at one point almost looks like a Nazi salute. Um, but as he's preaching, um, one of the um, prisoners farts very loudly, <laughs> leading to much giggling. Um, so again, adds to that sense of comedy, um, parody, very much in a British tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's an interesting kind of paradox there that Kubrick puts the words he agrees of in the Padre's mouth, um, especially that speech that he makes after Alex's humiliation with the naked um, act- actress. But then conversely, completely undermines it by having this character somewhat buffoonish. Right. You know, one of the things that strikes me is that the um, Padre talks about men going in and out of prison. Mm-hmm. Right. And the term in and out, right. the old oh. in and out, is right. Alex's slang for right. intercourse. So there's a little, you know, when you parse it, it's not always as straightforward as it seems. Right. Definitely. Uh, I'm really interested in the way that, like you're saying, he almost undercuts the sort of philo- philosophizing, right? Because he's putting, he's placing it in the mouth of someone who's a little bit of a character. And it, it's, it's almost like he's presenting this sort of, you know, view, like what's clear is that he's anti this kind of, this process, like you were talking about, you know, of just sort of, you know, using these like, you know, threats or just compulsion to basically force someone to act a certain way. And he's clearly against that, but Mm -hmm. I guess he's leaving a little bit more Kubrick himself, I guess, is leaving a little bit more open-ended, you know, kind of what is, you know, a preferable system. What is something that makes more sense? Because it's definitely not putting this sort of in the hands of religion, you know, and Kubrick, you know, as far as I, my research could tell, although I'm sure you know better, did not grow up religious and never really practiced, you know, religion, but he, he seems to not be placing it in, in the hands of religion and, and what that sort of solution is, what that kind of question is, maybe it is just, it shouldn't be, you know, it, it's this sort of anti authoritarian, like it shouldn't be any ruling body and it should be a little bit more, you know, individualistic and expressive, but he's clearly, you know, he's clearly leaving the window open there. And, uh, and yeah, and it, it reminds me also of just kind of my thoughts on the whole prison system, because it doesn't seem like, you know, he's obviously advocating against the sort of the Ludovico treatment, this kind of reformation process, but it doesn't feel like the film is advocating for just putting people into prison for longer and just kind of having that be the sort of system of reformation to sort of like atonement. You know, it it reminded me when I was watching this of the sort of Jewish conception of, you know, prison, because in in classical, you know, halakhic Judaism and in lawful Judaism, you know, in in Torah, they're they're actually, interestingly enough, is no real mention of any sort of prison system. And, And there are actions that come with consequences 
consequences and punishments, but the punishments are often meted out, you know, very quickly and, and sort of, you know, it could be a punishment of lashes or stoning. And, you know, oftentimes when those punishments didn't lead to death, although in many cases they did, mm-hmm. it was kind of just a, a sort of an act of reformation. It's if you, if you face punishments, you know, physical punishments and you actually, you know, kind of experience them, that will kind of reform you. And in some ways I was w- eager to see if this film was kind of relating to the prison system in the same way that maybe this isn't, you know, the best path towards reformation, but it's also very clearly not advocating for Ludovico. So the question of, you know, what actually is it, is it placing these characters in the same situation? Is it confront having them confront their victims as, you know, our characters are going to, as, as Alex will start doing in the later parts of the movie, is, is that the kind of best way to, you know, reform the, the sort of ultra violent actions of these characters. And I, I think a lot of those questions are open-ended. I definitely don't have an answer so explicitly from the film. You've raised a really interesting dimension that I hadn't really thought of is that um, Jews and prisons. I'm now trying to think of um, Jewish prison movies. Uh, I can think of Jews in prison in movies and TV. Right. Um, you know, like, like um, Orange is the New Black, for example, or, or, right. um, or Oz. Uh, but yeah, it, it strikes me what you're saying is where it, does Judaism have a position on prison? Well, because um, if they didn't have them in the Bible, then that was their chance gone because prisons are associated with state power, right? Mm-hmm. Jews didn't have right. a state until um, so so until the modern modern sort of state of Israel. So yeah, that, that, that I hadn't really thought of that. I'm gonna have to look up that one. That's that's really interesting to me. The, the clearest allusion is to Foucault, Michel Foucault's um, discipline and punish because the 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 picture of the, the of them walking in the yard. Is, is like the cover of the English edition of that book. And okay. Foucault's writing about the history of prisons and surveillance in prisons. So, um, you know, that's a really interesting angle. I hadn't thought of whether Kubrick's taking or anyone's taking a position on, on prison as, as, as a system of reform. There's something you said earlier that I wanted to, that, to connect the two is, I like Dan. You talked about the enterprising Jew. I talk about um, mimicry a lot that, mm-hmm. that Jews are um, like the character Zelig. Uh, a, this curiously nondescript character that's able to blend into any surrounding, right. including becoming a Nazi at, at one point. And Jews excel at mimicry, right? This is the, the historic condition of Jewishness is mimicry, the ability to pass. Peter Sellers really embodied this in his movies for, for Kubrick. Um, Amir and Carlin being the female Peter Sellers in this movie is Alex is like that. He's able to, the reason why prison works is he's able to ingratiate himself. Yeah. With anybody. Right. right. You know, he does what the Padre wants him to do mm-hmm. in his head. He's doing something completely different. Interestingly, the, the sequences you mentioned, um, Kubrick's research was Ben Hur. So oh, for those historic Ben Hur. Sorry. For those historic scenes where he's yeah, like slashing kind of a parody of Ben Hur. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And, and um, nice. Ben Ben Hur being the movie that Kirk Douglas wanted to be in, mm-hmm. but they gave it to the non-Jew Charlton Heston, and that motivated Kirk Douglas to then make Spartacus. Wow. To get back at them, which he did, and then hire Kubrick mm-hmm. for Spartacus, making Kubrick into the director that we know and love today. That's awesome. Or know and hate today, depending on where you stand. Which he wouldn't have been without Spartacus. So there's a very interesting. Um, Little little nugget of, of 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 information there, but what's interesting is Alex ingratiates himself first with the Padre, then with the people doing the Ludovico treatment, then with the uh, Minister of the Interior. I mean, right. He is the mimic par excellence, but it also shows the inefficacy, the uselessness of the prison system, right? Right. Because he's not reformed. 
He's just adapting. He's mimicking to what he needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Uh, I wanted to kind of pick up. I had a few like threads, but I think it's probably not worth it. Like to, like you were talking before about like the Jewish like punishment system, and I wanted to relate because there, I had this thing like in day school where we did like a Torah fair project, and we like would uh, take a certain aspect of the Torah and like do some sort of research about it. And the one that I chose as like a little kid was like, of course, the torture methods that they would do in like in biblical times and. You mentioned a few of them, like lashes and stoning and stuff like that, but you missed out the two best ones, which I think was beheading. And then also where they would pour like molten lead down your throat and it would burn out your organs. So what I did for that Torah Fair project is I took an X-Men action figure and I like put a soldering iron and I put some like solder <laughs> in his mouth and I wrote all about it. And, uh, you know, I just thought I would call that out because... There's a lot of good juicy ultra violence in the Torah as well. So which X-Men figure did you use? Colossus, you know. He's okay. he's Russian, but I questionably Jewish, but you know. Um yeah, as long as it wasn't Magneto or something no, obviously no. Jewish, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. Um <laughs> but that, that was a total aside and uh, you know, but I wanted to kind of pick it up where you left off, Harry, and kind of get us home, at least through the story, and then we can kind of get into things. Uh, you know, so after Alex is you know, has been dunked in this cattle trough and sort of left for not quite dead, but nearly there by Dim and Georgie. He stumbles uh, in the rain, in the dark to a house with a bright sign that says home. And he's like, this is it. I'm going to finally get some salvation and get some uh, some help from these strangers. He ends up going right back to where he started at the beginning. You know, he's at the author's house um, whose wife he assaulted and then uh, raped and, and killed. The author is now in a wheelchair and has a very uh, buff sort of uh, house assistant. I don't know. We could talk about that in a second. But, uh, you know, they have a few interactions. The, the 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 person who's at home picks up Alex, brings him inside. The author is uh, very welcoming to Alex and tries to help him out. But then he also figures that he can use Alex once he finds a little bit more about him. He feels like he can use him as like a a, a piece for his story, for his writing to to kind of show that, you know, the police are corrupt and and this process didn't work and things like that. But he has a moment of clarity when Alex is relaxing in his bathtub and he's singing, singing in the rain again. And that suddenly gives that writer a flashback, uh, a horrible flashback of, of when he was and his wife were beaten and his wife was raped and killed. And so then he realizes that something needs to be done about that. And, you know, the... They both sort of know what's going on, but they don't tell each other. And so it's kind of this tense standoff where Alex is sitting at the table by himself uh, with the writer next to him and his assistant eventually. And they are feeding him a nice bowl of spaghetti with some red wine, a lot of red wine. Maybe he's making kiddush. We'll talk about that in a sec. You know, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but uh, they keep on plying wine on him. And uh, Alex is very comfortable wearing a robe. Um, and then he gets knocked out that he's been poisoned and he's then kidnapped and put into uh upstairs room where they're blasting Beethoven um, and getting, he's getting tortured. Essentially they're playing Beethoven's ninth symphony and he wants it to be, you know, turned off and he wants everything to stop. Uh, it's at this point that he decides he's going to commit suicide because it's, it's yeah, it's, he's done. So he jumps out the window 
He gets very injured, but does not succeed in killing himself. He wakes up in a full body cast back at the hospital. Uh, he has a really uh, interesting scene, which we'll touch on, uh, where he has sort of a, I, I don't know what I would call this procedure, but it's uh, essentially like a, almost like a Rorschach test, but with pictures. And so he's meant to kind of figure out what the other person in a conversation is saying. And he kind of comes up with these sort of daffy answers. Um, and uh, in our sort of closing scene, the Minister of Interior comes to visit Alex and they have a long conversation about how they're best buddies and friends help each other out and you're going to help me out. And then as soon as Alex signs off for you know being the Minister of Interior's friend, all the people come in the room. There's a huge speaker system where they're playing music for Alex and all the photographers are there and they're shaking hands. Yeah, it's at this point where Alex kind of closes his eyes and then he has a sort of daydream of two people having sex on a bed of snow or rice or something like that and everyone's kind of clapping and I mean, then we end the film. I mean, Kubrick likes circularity in his movies. So right. we do see this kind of like, I mean, Odyssey is the term, um, is the subtitle of the forthcoming book, biography of Kubrick that, that I've just completed. Um, so there's that circularity of coming home. So the, the second half mirrors the first half. We do see this, uh, we see this in Eyes Wide Shut later on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so, and it's that part of that waltz structure as well. Um, so, so we do see that where, where, where he kind of revisits what happened to him earlier, but it's slightly different, um, this, this time round. Um, that, that would be, um, w- one of the points I make. Interestingly, one of the conspirators who joins the writer at his house, I think is called Goldstein, mm. um, something like that. And he keeps the name in the script that they say so he printed a script full of photographs and lines, mm-hmm. um, and um, he keeps the name in there, but you wouldn't know watching a movie. But if you, if you, if you got the script or, or read the book, then you would know. So there's a little interesting element there as what he means by that. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to say, I, I probably should have said this at the beginning. Um, one of the arguments I make in my book is when Kubrick, um, Kubrick from uh, fifty-five onwards um, or fifty-six onwards, um, always adapts pre-existing material of some sort um and with the exception of the shining and um 2001 all these books have um explicit jewishness in them you know in the characters what he then does is he removes the explicit jewishness right only to reinsert what i'd call a subsurface jewish sense of sensibility i probably should have said this at the outset so by that i mean is he'll you know in the case of clockwork orange there was a character in prison called big jew right? <laughs> oh god right takes big jew out um, right he removes him from the movie um there's other instances of this and so you think right he wants to whitewash it he's 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 a he's a director in the kind of era of the Hollywood moguls who who put Jews on screen but didn't want them to be read as Jews on screen. So Issa Danielovich becomes Kirk Douglas, for example. Right. Um, but having said that, he'll then go cast someone like Miriam Carlin, who you could read as Jewish in that role. So, it's, you know, but it's not explicit. Those who know, know. To paraphrase... Uh, a Jew, this is David Mamet's uh, sage of uh, uh, um, gloss of a Jewish sage. Those who know, know, know those who don't, don't. <laughs> right. 
So, right. so you know, there's there's that interesting impulse in the movie where where uh, we see it through his work actually. Um, now you could say it's just coincidence because he wanted the best um, female actor he could find in, in Britain at the time. That was that was Miriam Carlin. Nice. Um, he wanted someone who could play a really good cop. Oh, well, it happened to be Stephen Burkoff. He wanted someone who's great. You know, that's Aubrey Morris, right? Um, so, so uh, uh, I just throw that in. I probably should have said it earlier, and and um, about how one of the sort of ways that we can read Jewishness into the movie. Yeah, I will. Uh, you know, I'll just wrap up sort of some of the you know stuff that's going on at the end, where I just think that you know, I mean, first of all, we, we, you mentioned this, Daniel, but he mm-hmm. obviously is serving as a sort of political pawn for you know the yeah. writer. He's kind of, and that that's kind of a space that Alex has occupied throughout the movie, kind of being used you know for other people. And uh, one of the threads is him losing his ability to you know choose. Is it comes with the stripping of his agency as well, and he's he's be, he's been reduced to this political pawn because he can't really venture out and do anything for himself at, at that point because he's he's just so stunted you know and then you get the impression that he he can't like defend himself he can't do anything yeah but he seems i mean he seems more than happy to go along with it because it serves to benefit himself you know always right always and, and i think you're totally right about that because that's kind of what the big you know threat at the end of the movie is he's he's been shifted into a new pawn right a, a, well, I want to point out actually here this sequence because he's then confronted by the interior minister, you know, visits him and all of a sudden assumes him as, you know, assumes Alex as a new sort of pawn for, you know, the very opposite purpose. He says, we want you to regard us as friends. We put you right. You're getting the best of treatment. We never wished you harm. But there are some who did and do. And I think you know who those are. There is also a certain man, a writer of subversive literature, who has been howling for your blood. He's been mad with desire to stick a knife into you. But you're safe from him now. We put him away. And what I thought was so fascinating is that he kind of blames... We tried to help you. We followed recommendations which were made to us that turned out to be wrong. An inquiry will place the responsibility where it belongs. And, and it's this sort of absolving, you know, themselves from guilt that I okay. think it's it's that same removing them, you know, any agency from themselves. It's that, you know, I don't know who uh, who to ascribe this kind of phenomenon of just sort of blaming, you know, if you you can you can always send a trail back, you know, of sort of blame. Well, you know, I only acted this way because of how my parents raised me or only right. acted this way because of society. And it's just it just continues this thread, I think, in this movie of kind of shifting off the blame and kind of removing that from, you know, removing that agency from each of the characters. It's almost like the scapegoat in in Judaism, you know, like taking the sins of all of of yourself and throwing it into a scapegoat, and then thro- the Azazel, right, the goat that you throw off the cliff. Yeah, no, and that, no question. There you go. I think Alex becomes that, you know, for a lot of people, he's sort of pinned as this either this mode of, you know, here's what's wrong with their society, or here's how we messed up, or look, he's on our side again, and he's kind of given that weight even when he lacks the agency to actually, you know, do anything with it other than just sort of enjoy himself. Which, you know, by the end of the movie, he he announces that he's cured because he's able to think about, you know, sex and violence in a way that doesn't trigger nausea, and it's you know, it's this kind of ironic, you know, after all of the reformations that he's undergone, it, it feels like. In, in the same cyclical, you know, sense that you were talking about with Kubrick, he's kind of right back where he started. And that's that's his cure. Everything that's kind of happened to him has taken him off the path and somehow, you know, back where he belongs is, you know, all, all is right again. Right. 
There's something I want to. There's two things I want to add there. I mean, the yeah. thing at the end where is though that the the scene at the very end, the Alex is 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 having public intercourse. Um, it's socially sanctioned because you know the people who he's being applauded by well dressed people in Edwardian right. dress. Um, strangely enough, um, so it's socially sanctioned intercourse that that's being applauded, but and it looks consensual. Um, I mean, some people might argue that, but uh, uh, to me, it looks consensual. So thus, but in both elements of that show that things have changed, right? You know, whereas early in the that's film, true. it's non-consensual and it's not socially sanctioned. Um, the other thing that suddenly you, you, you guys just said that, that that I wanted to pick on it's the key theme I think for Kubrick. Um, I talked a little bit about my 2018 book, but I did a chapter called Kubrick and Childhood for um, another book called Bloomsbury Companion to Stanley Kubrick. And what I talked about is that in Kubrick's films, children are prematurely kind of, um, um, I can't think of the word, um, I want to say adulterized, um, adulterated, made into adults. Um, mm -hmm. I can't think of what the word is right now. Um, and placed into context that, that, you know, before their time, and and also sacrificed on the altars of their uh, figurative or actual fathers um um very much in line with genesis 22 you know with the arcade with the binding of isaac so um you know we see this throughout his films whether it's soldiers in war as figurative children whether it's danny and the shiny as an actual child who the father tries to murder right um certainly what we see in this movie and and, and the discussion you just had made me think of this uh i didn't think of it before is that is that alex i mean he's much younger in the book than he is he's a teenager than he's presented you know an early teenager than he's presented in in in, in the film obviously as as played by malcolm mcdowell he's the figurative child in all this mm -hmm. sacrificed um certainly for the second half of the film by the different symbolic fathers, whether it's the um, the, the the people administering the Ludovico technique, uh, which I should have mentioned to me, sort of recalls somewhat the the experiments of Joseph Mengele, um, the um, the writer is sacrificing him to his own ends, and uh, um, and then the Minister of the Interior, which is really interesting. I love that designation because that minister probably has no interiority. Another right. little, like um, amusing kind of like um, name there. Um, so we see, you know, his actual father is kind of weak and ineffectual, which is you were talking about that earlier. Just made me think of the stereotype of the Jewish dad, right? Yeah, it's the you know the mum that does all the talking um, and the feeling, you know. Yeah, but but and and but the symbolic fathers all are willing to sacrifice um, Alex, so he becomes the sacrificial lamb. Azazel, though the goat, or to me, the kind of symbolic Isaac in all this. You know, I think Genesis 22, well, I think it's hard to find a Jewish, uh, at least a male Jewish um, creative who isn't in some way reflecting on that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was very much there in the works that Kubrick admired. So Freud, Kafka, um uh, and others that was you know genesis 22 very much influences those writers and kubrick's reading those writers even if it isn't so explicit in in this the one jewish writer that is probably a bit more um rendered in this one is harold pinter the british jewish playwright there's a certain mundanity to the domestic sequences of m and p you know when he right. returns home and Joe and the whole dialogue that's very reminiscent of Jewish playwright Harold Pinter, whom Kubrick got to know um, slightly later. Nice.
And that was our discussion of A Clockwork Orange. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our ratings and final scores for the film. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. This week, we're joined by Nathan Abrams and discussing Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And uh, just for the last part of our episode, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to go through the cast and crew of the film, the content, the themes, and collectively come up with a final rating for the score for the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. And uh, Nathan, because you're our guest, why don't you start us off? How would you rate this this film in terms in terms of its Jewishness? We can talk about the merit of the film as a whole, you know, independently, but specifically we're focused on, you know, how Jewish would you say that the movie is? Yeah, I mean, in terms of explicit Jewishness, it's probably a one or a two tops. But in terms of a philosophical Jewishness, Judaism, mm-hmm. it's quite right. high, you know, a, a four or, four or five. I mean, like, like I said earlier, it, um, it it deals with a big question in Judaism, free choice, right? Free will and takes a normative rabbinic position on it. Um, so, you know, don't think in that sense. And it has a pop at the Christians, right? Um, and the Gentile British society. Um, no one comes out looking particularly good. You know, they're all using Alex for their own ends, as I said earlier. So in that sense, let's give it a five. Wow. Okay. So then uh, to just pull those ratings together, right, for the average score, you know, I guess between a one and a five, it kind of puts you at like a two and a half to three stars. But just so that it doesn't come from me and from your own words, what what's your final score for the record on how Jewish the film is? I'm going to go with a four because um, I, I'm really keen that people... Um, and especially listeners for your podcast, consider movies that don't strike them as Jewish at first sight. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to give it a low score because they'll go, "Ah, well, I knew it wasn't that Jewish. Therefore, if I give it a low score, he's confirmed it if they skip to the end. Um, So I want to say, let's give this a four because, um, you know, I want, I really, my thing is I really want people to think a bit wider than what's explicitly Jewish. What says Jewish on the tin, right? On the box cover or... What what's the metaphor now for streaming? <laughs> uh, yeah, the thumbnail exactly. on the Netflix know. capsule summary. Right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I uh, that that's really that's part of the fun of this exercise. You know, I always love it when we can take a movie that doesn't at least appear Jewish, and like we've been talking throughout, you know, whether it was intentional or not, there is so much Jewishness in you know a lot of the media we consume, and I I think we especially made the case for it in this film. So I do really like that score. Uh, Daniel, how about you? Uh, are you going to go as high with that or in, in keeping maybe more consistent with some of the other scores we've given some of these other films? Will you kind of slap this in uh, at a little bit lower than than maybe a four out of five Jewish stars? What do you, you think? Know, it's interesting. Usually I carry my ticket with me to the stretch train. And, you know, the stretch train for those who are new is kind of us kind of squeezing meaning in places where it's not usually there and getting aboard the stretch train and kind of making points that are very stretchy. I don't necessarily feel like I need my ticket for this episode between, you know, just watching the movie with that lens between hearing, uh, Nathan's, you know, all of his amazing points that he's made so far, reading his articles, doing some research on, uh, you know, online, there's a lot in there. You just kind of have to put on those glasses. And I think once you have those glasses or you take that red pill and you see the code of the matrix to throw another metaphor in there, it's really hard to unsee some of that stuff. I think, you know, the actors, a lot of the context that you provided, Nathan, both in your article and today, I think really kind of helped boost more of that Jewish perspective or presence rather. 
between some of the supporting roles while Mal- Malcolm McDowell was not, you know, Jewish and some of the main cast was not Jewish. Like the fact that Kubrick was Jewish and some of these uh, characters as well kind of helped a lot. The themes were super strong content, like on paper, not so Jewish, but I think the themes for me was where it shined, you know, the choice of like free will versus, you know, and teshuva and, and sacrificial and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that we've been talking about. I think it's, it's up there. I'm going to go maybe like three and a half stars. Harry, how about yourself? Well, I am, uh, I, I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, I appreciate, you know, the exercise and I love the idea of kind of highlighting the Jewishness that exists in the film, but I, uh, surprisingly, I'm going to kind of weigh in on, on the other side of it a little bit, just because I do believe in, you know, the philosophy and the Jewishness that's kind of embedded there thematically. And I think that our read today that we've kind of done over, and I don't know how long this episode is going to end up being, but kind of feels like over the last two hours has definitely been, you know, is grounded and definitely is legitimately there. But I don't think in the way that some of the other films that we've tackled, you know, in this exercise and sort of the, over the course of the podcast Jews on film, this movie isn't necessarily wearing its Jewishness as pronounced as some of the other ones. And even some of the themes there, you know, sometimes we'll read in, well, it's a Jewish filmmaker and they've clearly, you know, they're clearly working through these themes, even if they're going to mask it behind characters that might not fit into a Jewish right. box, mm-hmm. you know, here, I definitely, I, I see Kubrick breaking down these issues and I definitely think a, a sort of Jewish sensibility informed a lot of them and informed, like we were saying, his sort of rabbinic Judaism in, influenced kind of perspective on free will is definitely a part of that. But I don't think this movie is screaming, you know, Jewishness and is kind of weighing in from that Jewish perspective. And I know we said we're going to absolve, you know, we're going to, we're going to n- ignore intention for the sake of this exercise, but right. it definitely wasn't there an intention for me and uh-huh. in execution, I think we read it favorably, but I'm not sure it's all explicitly there. So that kind of has me weighing in at a 2.5 because I'm not sure I wanted to give it. Yeah. I'm not sure I wanted to give it, you know, sort of North of two and a half kind of more Jewish than not. But I also think that the case we made for the Jewishness is definitely there more so than it might be in, I don't know, maybe the room. Although obviously Nathan, you mentioned that there's a case to be made for a movie like that. So two and a half is kind of where every film. So, so two and a half is where I'll squarely weigh in kind of at the bottom of our three rankings. But uh, that, that also brings us to our final question. And we discussed over the break, Nathan, you know, what the meaning of, is this good for the Jews or not? And the answer to what we answered to you was, it depends how you think about the question. And I'm interested to see what you've kind of formulated in the interim. So what do you think? Is this movie good for the Jews? Well, it was a highly controversial movie that um, at the, that was banned in the UK, or well, not banned, but you were, we were unable to view it in the UK for a long time because of copycat crimes and death threats against Kubrick's family. No, it's not good for the Jews. And also, um, it still remains a controversial movie that people have trouble watching today. So in the sense of, if someone is watching this movie and thinking, well, a Jewish director made this horrific movie with a Jewish message at its core, then no. But on the other hand, right. as a intelligent interrogation of a key Jewish philosophical religious concept that fits into the era of great Jewish musicals, then yes, it is good for the Jews. <laughs> so I'm I'm hedging my bets there. It's part of the exercise for sure. Daniel, what about you? Do you think this was good for the Jews, bad for the Jews, or somewhere in the middle? I think since we've been so deep in this film, as far as just like analyzing every little thing and calling it out, I think I'm going to maybe step back and zoom out, get out of this sort of trench that we're in and just kind of read it more simplistically and sort of say that like most people who would watch this film would not think, you know, it's a Jewish film and therefore wouldn't have much to say about 
Jews in this film. Um, despite all this discussion we've had, I think on the surface, very surface level, I would say that people would be like, oh, this is a Jewish film. I think this is a good one to dissect and to look into. But from the surface, because there's not so um, plot wise and things like that, there's not a lot Jewishly. I think, you know, people might be just be indifferent. Harry, what about yourself? Yeah, you know, I definitely agree with you that this is a movie that, you know, most people watching might not be watching with this sort of Jewish lens that we are and might not take that. But it's funny when when this question was raised, my mind immediately went to the scene where he's talking about, you know, preferring the Old Testament and kind of envisioning the sort of the concubines and kind of that lens of it and the violence. And if you are not familiar with, you know, the Bible, Old New Testament, and that's kind of your window into it, and it's, oh, this insane sort of you know, horrific, ultra-violent character really is yeah. into the Old Testament, you know, that might not read so well for us. But I guess taking the more macro sort of meta lens, you know, as a, you know, very well-revered, I mean, Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick being one of the most, you know, revered filmmakers of all time. And even just if someone listened to this episode or just did some research and discovered that he was Jewish, I think that's in its own way a very good look for us. So I'm very proud to claim this movie, you know, as our own, this filmmaker, even if it's one that's, you know, very, like you were saying, Nathan, just very controversial and upsetting and one that, you know, my mom has been, you know, shout out to my mom has been pretty good about keeping up with the films that we've been doing for oh, nice. this podcast. But this one might not be one that I'd recommend to her if she'd never seen it because it's a, uh, it's definitely a uh, graphic in its own way. So in that sense, you know, not, I don't think this one is dictating most people's feelings on the Jews, but if it is, you know, good and bad, same, same as usual. Um, okay. I wanted to uh, ask one more thing to you, Nathan, and we, we might cut this. We'll see what happens uh, with the sort of answer, but you know, when, right before we started recording, this was actually a movie that Daniel and I had, you know, picked, although we, we obviously went Kubrick because it was, you know, something that we knew you had, uh, you had thought about a lot, but you mentioned to us that a clockwork orange is actually your least favorite Kubrick film. And I was just wondering, you know, where that might come from. And if any of this discussion in the last couple hours of conversation has made you, you know, rethink that a little bit, or maybe just enjoy the movie on a new level. And maybe, maybe I'm just overreaching, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, there's one thing I wanted to add, actually, that, that um, something you said that I should have said earlier that you just, um, that, you know, isn't it? And I think you just said it. It's just, isn't it interesting that Alex draws more inspiration from the um, Hebrew Bible than he does the New Testament? Right. <laughs> what does that say? Um, exactly. No, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's two reasons why I think Kubrick's mature movies endure, um, why we we discuss them and we'll be discussing them far longer than some other ones. And, and they are, firstly, um, they usually push the envelope technically somehow. They're very technically adept. If they don't introduce a new process, which a lot of them do, um, something that's then copied later on, widely adopted, um, they they um they're very technically adept and then the second thing is they're 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 intellectual that was the subtitle of my book stanley kubrick's new york jewish intellectual they're very intellectual they contain ideas they're deep and the reason is he did a lot of research pre-production research and he read around this topic i mentioned bf skinner he would have known bf skinner he would have read around bf skinner so um you know of course i always admire a clockwork orange you know on those two levels one he, he filmed it extremely quickly very cheaply, two million dollars. Uh, two million dollars. He used the latest technology at the time: radio mics, telephoto lenses. Most of it was shot on location, apart from very few sets. So he used what was available and did it very quickly and very cheaply to please his new paymasters at Warner Brothers, right. the most Jewish of all the uh, seven of the um, eight Hollywood studios. Um, 
and the only one with any balls, according to um, you can cut that bit if you want, but <laughs> anyone with any balls, according to one actor, because um, the first to sort of fight against the Nazis with um, Casablanca, right? Another great Jewish movie. Um, so, so you know, but the thing is here, it's it's you know, <laughs> you know, with those two things, yeah, technically a debt movie, um, and with this use of music and editing with the violence, you know, has pushed a process that other people haven't done. Um, and it's full of ideas. I mean, very deep, this movie. You could see this being taught across a range of disciplines, film studies, religion, philosophy, um, Judaism. You know, my personal reaction, it leaves me cold, and not because I object to any of it. Um, I just, you know, I, it just doesn't connect with me on on a level, you know. I, you know my favorite is Dr. Strangelove. Mm. Okay. Um, after that, we're probably looking at the his three final movies: Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, The Shine. Well, four Barry Lyndon. Um, are probably my my favorites. You know, I admire two thousand and one. How can you not? But in terms of some, it's like a piece of music, right? And a piece of music. Not that I know much about music, but I, <laughs> you can pull it apart. All the musicology be explained why that is a great piece of music like pop tune but do you feel it is that does it hook and grab you and that's very personal right and no one can really explain you know i i love hip-hop because i love the bass line okay mm -hmm. um for me this movie lacks that i, I don't know why it just does sure any love for ai or are we not counting that in the canon you know, I've only seen it once the whole way through. I need wow. to, um, I need to, you know, get me on that. That's an exercise. I need to rewatch that through everything I know about it and think that one through. I watched it once and dismissed it as Spielberg, but I don't think that's fair. Yeah, yeah all this just sounds like we're going to have to have you on plenty more times. So that's <laughs> yeah. uh, that's great news to us. Fantastic. Yeah, Nathan yeah, Abrams. Happy to. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think you're probably our first international guest. So you get a trophy for that, a trophy for being an awesome guest. Um, and, uh, you know, and I wanted to see at this time, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, well, you can uh, read any of the books that were mentioned at the outset. Um, hopefully you'll link to my bio in uh, in your in your production notes. Absolutely. Um, but um, yeah, New Jewin Film, if you're interested in that, any of the Kubrick books, and um, yeah, I've just completed a 600-page um, biography of Stanley Kubrick with my co-writer Robert P. Kolker. Doesn't specifically focus on his Jewishness, but that's a part of it because it was a part of Kubrick's life. Um, so uh, hopefully that will be out next year. Um, so check check that out. Uh, um, but yeah, if you look if you look at my profile and you're interested in anything, then just get in touch. Um, but if you Google around, there's plenty of non-academic stuff out there about this and other topics. Fantastic. And are you, uh, do you want people, are you able to be connected or how can people find you online? Like social media, do you do Twitter, LinkedIn or? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter as ND Abrams, um, Facebook as Nathan Abrams, Nosson David on Instagram. And you can just write Nathan Abrams Bangor and you will, uh, find me, um, just write Nathan Abrams Kubrick. You'll find me. <laughs> All right. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for being here on the podcast to discuss A Clockwork Orange. Harry, it's always great to chat with you. Have a great one. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. 
Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.